What's going on, everybody? And welcome to a new episode of the Core Consults RX Podcast, episode 201. We're starting over, and we will be doing a countdown until we get to 300, just so you all know. <laughs> wow, Mike, we're so close to 300. So close to 300. <laughs> Any day now, we'll get there. But uh, yeah, so 201. Um, this episode is going to be accredited uh, for ACPE continuing education for pharmacists and nurses. Um, thanks to our friends over at freece.com. And uh, because of their partnership, it allows their unlimited membership holders to gain one hour of credit for this episode um, after you ace the post-activity test, which if you are a free CE unlimited member, click the link in the show notes below, or you can just go to their homepage and go to learn and it also will pop up. Uh, but you pick the episode that you listen to, it'll give you a 10 question quiz uh, for the post-activity section, ace that and you will get your one hour credit. If you are not a member of FreeCE.com or you do not have an unlimited membership, then definitely give them a look and see all that they have to offer. Uh, monographs, live episodes of different topics. They have uh, the podcast, obviously. They have news articles that will go out. Lots of stuff to keep up to date. Um, and so you can also use our discount code in the show notes below to get a discount off the annual unlimited membership price. So thanks to them for continuing to work with us. Um, to access the activity for this particular um, episode, it is going to be password rhythm, uh, and that's R-H-Y-T-H-M, because um, if you're like me and can't spell rhythm, you have to do it very slowly, and uh, it'll be all capital letters, um, and that's rhythm in all caps, and that'll let you have access to it. I, li I like seeing you kind of scramble to make sure you had it pulled up to make sure you spelled it correctly, it, but it, as it, you were spelling it, it I you thought... show my screen real quick for the video? <laughs> there you go. Rhythm. <laughs> I Googled it to make sure I was spelling it correctly because I doubted myself that badly. As you were spelling it, I thought it was wrong. I was like, what, R-H-Y? It just, it's not yeah. natural. So, I, And I can barely spell anything, so, so this I is, definitely double check That's myself. question number 11 of the <laughs> quiz uh, is to... Spell it can correctly. Can you spell rhythm correctly? And you have to be honest, otherwise you lose all your credit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... The reason it's called rhythm, mm. um, because we are going to be talking about atrial fibrillation today. Yes. It's been oh. a long time. I think we did a patient case a while back, but before that, it's been a long time. Because it was one of our kind of original episodes. Has it been a while? Time. I feel like we did it not too long ago, but uh, yeah, I guess, <sighs> I don't know. Maybe you're, I, mean, I, I thought always I, get I the looked, patient cases confused. I think it was a patient case. I looked last week and it had been a long time. Uh, definitely not an accredited episode, and we're going to, you know, kind of hit the full gamut today. So. Yeah. There's a relatively newer guidelines um, within the last couple of years, so mm -hmm. um, we'll go through kind of those, but we'll hopefully give you a, a good overview. Um, I say good very loosely, obviously. I say good. <laughs> Cole's the hype man. Very, He's always very Very happy. liberally. Yeah. So with, we put them together and average it out, <laughs> somewhat honest. It's more moderate. So uh, AFib, what do you want to start, Cole? Yeah, I mean, we'll start from the beginning. What is AFib? It's an arrhythmia, so we'll take you through... Um, just some um, cardiac action potential, um, electrical activity action too. So there's four phases to the cardiac action potential um, that you're familiar with. You can imagine the graph. I'm sure you've all seen it in class. Um, phase zero being rapid ventricular depolarization that initiates the heartbeat in response to an influx of sodium, and that causes the ventricular contraction. Um, and that's what the QRS complex is on an ECG. Phase one is early rapid repolarization, Sodium channels close at that point. Phase two, a plateau in response to an influx of calcium and an efflux of potassium. 
Phase three, a rapid ventricular repolarization in response to an efflux of potassium. And that's represented by the T wave on the ECG. And then phase four is the P wave on the ECG. And that's the resting membrane potential. And that's where atrial depolarization occurs. So obviously with AFib, it is not going to follow that exact process because it's arrhythmic. Yeah. And AJ, if you show my screen real quick, you can kind of, this is the action potential that Cole's talking about. So yes. that I'm sure everyone's seen and then quickly forgot as fast <laughs> as they saw it. Cool. Thanks, AJ. All right. Um, so some things to, you know, keep in mind, um, the atrial fibrillation is the most common type of arrhythmia. So there are obviously other types. Um, it's the most common, uh, it results from multiple waves of electrical impulses in the atria, uh, that leads to that irregular and, um, rapid ventricular response. Like Cole was you know, mentioning, um, the, the concern is obviously the long-term uh, potential risks that can be associated with atrial fibrillation and also the, the hemodynamic potential instability that can be there and, and just the symptom control that patients may be experiencing. Um, and, you know, depending on their presentation of AFib, it will kind of depend on uh, which treatment option we may need to go with. Because technically speaking, we can kind of lump them into four different categories. We can say it's proxismal AFib, um, which is basically atrial fibrillation that terminates spontaneously um, within seven days of onset. And for most patients, it's within a 24-hour period. Mm -hmm. Um, with persistent AFib, you have uh, continuous atrial fibrillation that's sustained longer than seven days. Um, with long-standing persistent, it's continuous that lasts for longer than 12 months, um, which is, that's always a huge, it's a big gap. They didn't go seven days to 30 days. They went <laughs> seven days a year. Yep. Um, so anyway. what is it? Uh... And then permanent is where there's no longer attempt to restore uh, or maintain normal size for them. That's so the persistent point. is just seven days to a year. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. That is a lot. A lot of... Uh, well, not a lot of, I guess. A fair amount of what we'll talk about will be kind of chronic AFib, and then we're also going to be talking about what to do in the acute situations with um, um, cardioversion and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it might not always be AFib. So there are potential underlying causes that you need to rule out. An acute MI, <clears throat> alcohol intoxication, pericarditis. Uh, could be a PE, a pulmonary embolism. Hyperthyroidism uh, can cause it as well. And then cardiac surgery post-op. Um, so that to, to, to rule out an underlying cause of AFib, I should say. Well, and also the clinical presentations that, because unless the patient has an EKG at home or can hear AFib by listening to their heart rate or something, which probably is not the happening in the, the layman's. Yeah, the, they've got that thing you can get on Amazon for like a hundred bucks. Have you seen that? Yeah, well, the Apple Watch, isn't it now oh. like FDA approved to like yes. detect AFib? So you don't even need, well, you can spend, yeah, $600 on the Apple Watch. You don't That's, have to buy the $100 thing on right, Amazon. Right, exactly. You're saving money. It's, it's a win-win. <laughs> if, if you don't think about it very hard. I have to, I don't think we can move on without me addressing um, AJ's sunglasses situation. I can only imagine that he's wearing them so that he can sleep during the episode. That is a good And then just theory. use his ears, because he really doesn't have to look. So as, he's got his hands on the buttons and then... <laughs> As one of us talks, he just boop, it switches it, and then like boop, that. switches it. He's getting better at it. Just like yeah. That. yeah, eyes closed. There you go. Yeah. There I am. I can only imagine. I need sunglasses, Cole. <laughs> yes. Would make the podcast much more interesting. And darker. That is... <laughs> Be harder to see. <laughs> so the reason why Cole was mentioning ruling out those other things, obviously, is because the clinical presentation outside of, you know, getting and seeing AFib on an EKG or, um, you know, from an Apple watch or something, um, the clinical presentation often is, you know, palpitations, shortness of breath, chest pain, lightheadedness, um, or even like, you know, syncopal episodes. And so it's something that, yeah, it, those symptoms can be 
associated with several other cardiovascular events. So that's where the ruling out is important. Yep. Um, I, when you're evaluating a patient, getting the vital signs and, and uh, EKG readings, as well as cardiac enzymes is a good idea. Um, if you can get an echo um, as well, and then just your routine you know, thyroid labs, CMP, CBC, things of that nature, um, just to kind of get a, a full workup of the patient um, prior to yeah, moving forward, but it's essentially the uh, AFib will show up on the EKG, and then depending on their hemodynamic stability, can kind of lead you in one direction or the other. Right, and especially with chronic AFib, I mean, a patient who's had it a lot can mm-hmm. tell when oh, they're yeah. in AFib, right? Um, which is where some of the like pill in the pocket things will come from, as we talk about some of the um, cardioversion options um, or, or rhythm control options, I should say, where a patient could identify when they're in AFib without having to use an expensive Apple watch because they just know what it feels like. I'll, uh, since you got to share something funny or brought up something funny, I got this popped into my head because my dad has AFib. And so, um, my younger brother one time, um, <laughs> very smart guy, but not a medical professional. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he, he calls me up one time. This is the, I didn't realize my dad had a second episode of it, but so my brother calls me to let me know. And he, he tells me by saying, he goes, Hey dude, uh, yeah, dad's heart went berserk again. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, okay. Is that his words or <laughs> is that the attending's is words? That the doctor's words. Oh, uh, it was funny. I was like, oh, let's, I'm glad he. Uh, what's the uh, what's the ICD ten code for heart goes berserk? I I have to look that one up. I can't remember. <laughs> it's got to be one of them. Um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. That's good. Yeah. So um, when your heart goes berserk, there's a couple of things that you can do. A couple of things that are needed. Um, one, we can control the rate because when it is in that arrhythmia, the the heart rate is going to increase significantly and that can cause symptoms and then um, put patients at increased risk for stroke. Um, there's also uh, cardioversion, which is just getting them back into normal sinus rhythm. So I'll talk about the rate control a little bit real quick, but um, patients with rapid ventricular response usually need um, control of this. It can be achieved by oral medications, um, IV administration of medications, primarily beta blockers. Uh, you'll see um, esmolol, IV, metoprolol, oral, um, or non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, and specifically non-dihydropyridine, like dotiazem and verapamil. So the um, target, the goal resting heart rate in general is between 80 and 100 beats per minute. Um, we'll talk about where the goals for rate control come from uh, uh, near the end. Uh, but after rate control has been achieved, many patients will spontaneously revert to normal sinus rhythm after that. So they don't, we don't just control their rate and then let them hang out in AFib like indefinitely. Um, in general, they will uh, switch back to normal sinus rhythm. And spontaneous conversion is most likely to occur um, in patients with a duration of AFib less than 48 hours um, or in patients with a history of short self-limited episodes. And that would be spontaneous conversion. Now, if the patient does not spontaneously convert back to normal sinus rhythm, sometimes we have to do electrical cardioversion. Um, so we cardiovert them and shock them back into normal sinus rhythm. Um, they also do uh, what they call like pharmacological uh conversion. Um, but, uh, we'll talk about that when we get to the more uh, maintenance medications, things like that. This is just me being dense because obviously I do more with drugs and not so much with electrical things, but do they use <laughs> the paddles? Like that's what I've always imagined, but I don't even actually know. Do they use the paddles? Like when you're uh, resuscitating somebody to cardiovert them electrically? Uh, I don't 
believe it's the pen. I don't know. I don't know. That's what I'm know. saying. I've I have never, no idea. I've, I've never, never watched it done. I've never seen it or looked into it. So I just know. know yeah. You just know that it Cole, you're, takes you're a shockwave. You're basically showing the world now how little, <laughs> little we actually Well, know. it's because we focus on the drugs. We need There's other... electrode patches that they put on the left side okay. and the right side under your heart. So they'd like conduct it between... So it's like, an, a, it's like an AED. Yeah. Like it works kind of... And it sends a shock. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's all I'm go. wondering. So yeah, I guess an AED is a type of electrical cardioversion. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. Look yeah. at that. There, I was wondering, Hopefully. so I just I decided to ask it live. Yeah, on we're we're all learning as we go. <laughs> That's what you want in a host of a podcast. <laughs> we know about the drugs, people. Yeah, okay? we don't. We, yeah, we we never pre- pretended to be cardiologists, <laughs> except for me a couple times. But uh, no, so electrical cardioversion. Um, this can um, you know be done for a few different reasons. But um, you know, if a patient is hemodynamically unstable um, or unstable, rather, you know, it's more of an emergency situation. They we want to make sure we can get them you know hemodynamically stable again and no longer compromised in that route. So um, you know that can be one reason why we need to um, cardiovert them quickly. Um, it's a first episode of AFib, then definitely. Uh, they will attempt cardioversion just because it's a new onset. Um, or if it's symptomatic, persistent AFib, sometimes they'll um, try to cardiovert um, as well uh, just to try to hopefully give the patient some relief. But it's in that case, it's less likely that it's going to be that effective, um, if it's, especially if it's been going on you know, for a while. Um, electrical cardioversion, though, in, in order to do this, we want to ensure that oxygen saturation and electrolytes, um, particularly serum potassium, are close to normal if possible. Um, the need for anticoagulation um, and you know whether or not they've been on anticoagulation, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but um, making sure that's been assessed, um, and then uh, making sure that the patient is uh, under some you know procedural sedation, and t- typically um, they're having their blood pressure and other vitals, oxygen saturation monitored and uh you know it's it's rarely associated with complications from the actual cardioversion itself mm-hmm. um you know some clot formation things like that can happen as a result from the afib but and we'll talk about that when it comes to uh anticoags right but yeah uh, electrical cardioversion is definitely uh one route that needs to be uh at least looked at to see if it's possible it is when i was in school learning about it i feel like it sounded a lot scarier but um it's not that scary would you do it without sedation uh, <laughs> yeah. Would you be a man about that it? That might be a little more scary. I imagine that has to happen sometimes. Or do you think, I mean, maybe not. Maybe I they get know. them sedated very quickly. If you've ever gotten cardioverted without sedation, please email us <laughs> and let us know how it felt. I mean, you know, if you're in an AED, like emergency situation, it's not like they're going to sedate you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're they're kind of self-sedated. Well, that. they're not always unconscious. Yeah. Right? I think usually the, the AD, you're probably dealing with an unconscious person. Well, it, it's going to, you know, and when you plug that thing up, if it... I just listen to orders at that point. I know. I it, it tells you what run. to do, but if it's got a abnormal rhythm that it can shock, the person doesn't have to be unconscious for that. That being said, you probably wouldn't even be plugging them into an AED. If they were well, conscious. Unless they were having like, um, you know, respiratory issues or something like that. I don't know Maybe. enough about ACS, but... I feel like we're really showing our true colors yeah, here. Yeah, I don't know. Guys, we're a lot better in, uh, when it comes to family <laughs> medicine primary care versus emergency medicine of any kind. That's why, that's why I don't... I put that out there. Plus, you know, AJ's wearing glasses right now still, so... <laughs> 
we'll, we'll chalk that up to us being distracted <laughs> There's by been those. no change in the glasses. But um, sedation or not, it doesn't always work. So there is um, some predictors for the cardioversion being unsuccessful um, or for a patient maintaining sinus rhythm after cardioversion. So uh, some of those red flags might be if the AFib has been continuously present for more than a year, which is um, very unfortunate. If the left atrium is markedly enlarged, uh, greater than six centimeters, for example, patients who had AFib recurrence while taking adequate doses of an antiarrhythmic drug, an appropriate antiarrhythmic drug, um, who recently undergone cardioversion, so maybe they recently had a cardioversion, they're on rhythm control, and then they still um, are going back in AFib needing it again, so that's less likely for that to be successful. Uh, patients who have failed more than one antiarrhythmic a rhythmic drug are less likely to maintain sinus rhythm. And then if there is an underlying precipitating cause like pericarditis, pneumonia, mitral valve disease, and that's not been corrected, those patients are less likely to be successful as well. All right. So um, we'll go back to controlling the ventricular weight um, rate and we'll kind of walk it back uh, because there are some other things to consider as far as when to pick one option over the other. Um, so, for example, if the patient has no other cardiovascular disease, um, you can use the, any of the beta blockers that like Cole, uh, had mentioned um, or diltiazem or verapamil. Um, if the patient does have hypertension or they have a history of preserved ejection fraction heart failure, then uh, we will typically go, again, with any of those choices that he mentioned. If it is left ventricular dysfunction or reduced ejection fraction heart failure, then beta blockers and even possibly digoxin at that point would be preferred over diltiazem or verapamil. And then um, with COPD, you can use any of those above uh, choices um, like we had already talked about. So really the main one is with... Um, the patients with heart failure, reduced ejection fraction heart failure, where the options change a little bit. Um, and then amiodarone, in some more rare cases, can also be used to control the rate. Um, if a patient is um, having uh, no response to the previous agents because amiodarone, it's an antiarrhythmic, but can also be used uh, to control rate to some extent as well. Right. Um, yeah. Go over that timing of the anticoagulation. Yeah, so... And again, this is all happening initially with they're in the ED, you know, with AFib. This is all, this is when this is happening. This, this is not like a, this we're not is at the all, maintenance phase yet. This is all new onset or yeah, more acute situations of AFib. We're not talking about chronic management. So in that situation, timing of the anticoagulation um, in hemodynamically unstable patients um, may need to be cardioverted urgently without time to get them properly anticoagulated. Um, so that's something to be aware of. Candidates for anticoagulation in this case should receive IV heparin or low molecular weight heparin and start that as soon as possible before the cardioversion. But if it's not soon enough and a patient has had AFib longer than 48 hours or you're not sure how long they've had AFib, um, then they should be therapeutically anticoagulated for at least three weeks or receive short-term um, anticoagulation followed by screening with a um, TEE, transesophageal echocardiogram, to exclude any atrial thrombus prior to cardioversion. So the reason why that's important is because past 48 hours, the likelihood that the blood has pooled and clotted in the atrium is left, much... Left atrial appendage. Left atrial appendage is much higher. So if we cardiovert them, it might break that off, send it straight to the brain, right? Mm -hmm. um, cause a stroke, so that's a problem. But they can go in there with a transesophageal echocardiogram and take a look and see if the um, all the blood is viscous and not clotted. And if that's the case with um, 
short-term anticoagulation, they could cardiovert in that case safely. Because that's the only concern, is is there a clot in there that would break off? Yeah, and past 48 hours is definitely the likelihood of being throwing a clot is going to be a lot higher. Yeah. All right. So, um, and then, of course, when it comes to uh, using anticoag, which we'll get into more detail towards the end, but you can use either uh, warfarin or a factor 10 inhibitor or even a direct thrombin inhibitor as well. Um, all right. So let's talk about, and we'll come back and like lump all this, summarize everything at the end, but, um, let's talk about chronic management, um, which, you know, one of the, the big debates, which we'll get into a little bit is the rate versus rhythm, uh, methods of controlling a patient's, uh, in maintaining them in normal sinus rhythm. Um, for rate control, we have things like beta blockers, the non-dihydrocalcium channel blockers, the joxin, the same ones we would use in an acute situation. And then for rhythm control, we have all kinds of uh, options. We'll talk about some of the more popular ones that are more effective than others. Um, but you basically have multiple classes um, called the Vaughn Williams classification um, of antiarrhythmics. And so class one is basically broken into th- three different subgroups. So you have uh, 1A, which is sodium potassium channel blockers um, that are intermediate acting. And then you have um, your 1B, which is sodium channel blockers, fast on, fast off is what they're referred to, um, which would be like our lidocanes. Um, uh, Class 1C is a sodium channel blocker, slow on, slow off. And that would be like our fleconide or propafenone. Um, and then from there, your your uh, class two meds are actually beta blockers. So esmolol is one example. Considered antiarrhythmic. Yeah, exactly. And um, the class three is the, ch- the potassium channel blockers. And these are the ones you probably are familiar with, like amiodarone, defetilide, dronetarone, uh, sotalol, which is technically still a beta blocker, but because it's a f- has effects on potassium channels and whatnot, they lump it in with um, the other cl- uh, class three medications. Right, and then uh, four is more like your diltiazem, verapamil, non-dihydros. Right. So, um, so flecainide first because that's a popular one or has been in the past. Um, has an old brand name called Tambacor. I don't think anybody really knows that, right? Well, at least not our, <laughs> not, not our, our generation. Not right? our generation. So this is what we were referencing when we said pill in the pocket approach because they can uh, it can be used to terminate out of hospital paroxysmal AFib of short duration. So they could keep a pill, and if they felt um, um, themselves uh, going into AFib or being in AFib, they could take it to try to um, convert themselves back to normal sinus rhythm kind of acutely. Um, some cardiologists have the patients take a diltiazem or a beta blocker about half an hour before um, before the antiarrhythmic drug, so before flecainide, to prevent a rapid ventricular rate uh, in the case that the patient converts to a flutter. Um, some prefer the patient to have the pill in the pocket dose taken in the ED so they can monitor uh, in case something goes wrong for safety and efficacy. Um, and it shouldn't be used in patients with structural heart disease, particularly those with left ventricular uh, systolic dysfunction or CAD, coronary artery disease. Um, also, there are some reasons why you would not want to use it. So mentioned coronary artery disease, so MI. Um, heart failure, like I said, also heart block, unless the patient has a functional artificial pacemaker, those would all be contraindications. In general, it has some adverse effects um, that you'd kind of expect with this kind of medication, dizziness, possibly visual disturbances, trouble breathing, and then monitoring or ongoing um, monitoring would be an EKG. Also, uh, keep an eye on their blood pressure, their heart rate, their electrolytes. And it does have um, drug interactions with 
2d6 it's a major 2d6 substrate um, so those would be significant and there are a fair amount of 2d6 uh, interactions so be aware of that as well all right, so we also have propathenone, um, which kind of like Flick and I can be used in situations to like pharmacologically cardiovert somebody. Um, and uh, it does seem to be significantly more effective in patients basically that have proxismal AFib as opposed to more persistent AFib. Um, it, it's not recommended either in patients who have structural heart disease, just like Flick and I. Um, just like Cole said, specifically with left ventricular dysfunction or coronary artery disease, um, we do not use propafenone either. Um, and uh, the administration of propafenone prior to like an electrical cardioversion um, doesn't uh, alter the energy requirements or the success of the cardioversion. So that uh, strategy is no longer recommended. Um, so just doing the cardioversion is, is enough. Right. Um, then there's amiodarone. So amiodarone has a black box warning for some toxicities. And so these are good to remember. And most people associated with um, lung and liver, so pulmonary and hepatotoxicity. So be aware of that. Um, it has some other warnings. Um, it's kind of dirty as far as its side effects and effects on the body. Um, the thyroid uh, can cause hyper or hypothyroidism. Hypo is more common. Neurotoxicity, optic neuropathy, visual impairment. Uh, it can also cause a blue skin coloration um, with photo photosensitivity. It can lower heart rate, um, lower blood pressure. Uh, it can cause constipation and tremor. There is ongoing monitoring. You want to monitor thyroid labs because of the potential issues with thyroid, as well as LFTs because of the hepatotoxicity. It has a really long half-life of uh, 40 to 50 days, but in a patient with heart failure, this would be the antiarrhythmic drug of choice because the others are, in general, are contraindicated in heart failure. All right. We also have Sotolol. Um, so sounds like a beta blocker and technically is, but they lump it in as an antiarrhythmic um, class three. Uh, it does have a box warning for potentially causing life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias. Um, so you have a decreased risk if you start the Sotolol in the hospital, but there is that rare but, you know, significant enough warning they made it into a black box um uh, the dosing interval is adjusted based on the patient's creatinine clearance um, so there is some renal dose adjustments um, contraindications would be patients who have an acquired um, elevator uh, um, long qt interval um, uncontrolled heart failure or sinus bradycardia um, other like more common effects would be just overall bradycardia fatigue dyspnea just like you would think of with most beta blockers. Um, there was a study that compared amiodarone versus Sotolol, like head to head. Um, it was called the SAFE hyphen T safety trial. I see what you did there, guys. Um, and uh, equal, uh, they were both equal at cardioverting to normal sinus rhythm. Um, however, amiodarone uh, was superior to Sotolol when it came to maintaining normal sinus rhythm. So Sotolol will get the patient back into normal sinus rhythm, but it may not keep them there, at least as well as amiodarone. See, I bet that safe T trial, the fact that they had to do safe hyphen T probably means that somewhere in the title it works out. Because why not just spell out safety? Good question. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it'll all. Okay. We'll uh, have to look that up. AJ, write that down for us to look up later. I'm on it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, AJ. Uh, the next is Moltac. Uh, generic is dronetarone. So it also has a box warning, and this one is kind of significant for increased risk of death and stroke in heart failure patients or in permanent AFib, their studies showing mortality. Um, so in general, we're going to avoid this one. It's not great. Uh, as Mike would say, what is it? 
It's trash. Trash, right. I think it's, uh, it was the Andromeda study, I think. The number needed to die, to quote Dr. Wirt, was very low. And like if you have heart failure and AFib together and use this drug. So. It's not ideal when it's the number needed to die is low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want that. Um, there are some other warnings if you would like to use this, which I have seen it used. Um, hepatic failure, lung disease, acute renal failure, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. I can only imagine that it would just be that so many other of the first line ones had been tried that somebody'd be on this or a drug rep got into somebody's ear. Maybe. I don't know. I I don't really I've get never it. heard of like a good reason to be on it or a good I've situation. definitely I've definitely seen it. I have seen it. Of definitely course I've seen, seen a lot of really dumb things, yeah. but I don't know. Um I'm sure there's some situation. I'm sure somebody's out there. got a reason. They yeah. they don't just do it. Cardiologists don't just do stuff for no reason. They got a reason. Yeah. So Cole's given on a lot of a lot of credits cardiologists. There. <laughs> That's called interprofessionalism. <laughs> right, right, right. No, well, I'm sure they all, always have a reason. <laughs> now, um, defedalide is the other uh, med we'll talk about. Um, so Tikasin, um, this one does carry a box warning as well uh, because it needs to be started um, and then also restarted in the setting um, of an in, or the inpatient setting uh, so that we can do continuous EKG monitoring. Um, that's part of the box warning, the REMS program, whenever the patient is first started uh, on this med or when they've come off of it. Um, contraindications, uh, prolonged QT intervals. Uh, if the heart rate is less than 50 at baseline uh, or if the creatinine clearance is less than 20, and if the QT or the corrected QT interval is greater than 440 um, milliseconds, then it is also contraindicated. So, um, some things to be monitoring for at baseline, and then adverse effects that are common, uh, headache, dizziness, um, increased QT interval, obviously, and then there have been episodes of ventricular tachycardia is happening as well. Um, but th- this is also one that, uh, just like Cole was talking about the amiodarone, if the patient has left ventricular dysfunction, heart failure, um, CAD, uh, amiodarone is, is usually the first line option in those patients instead of the other antiarrhythmics, and this is the other one that you can use in that setting. Um, so this one is an option for patients that have heart failures or comorbidity as well. So yeah, throwing that out there. Uh, there are some studies comparing some of the antiarrhythmics uh, for non-inferiority and such. So in one open-label randomized study, there were 200 patients. Um, the probability of a safe and effective response um, at one year uh, as far as maintenance of sinus rhythm or fewer episodes of paroxysmal AFib with flecainide and propafenone were 77 and 75% in that one. There was also a meta-analysis that evaluated trials of patients with AFib resistant to class 1 drugs or sodalol who were then treated with flecainide or amiodarone after cardioversion. Maintenance of sinus rhythm at 12 months was significantly more likely with amiodarone, interestingly, 60% versus 34% with flecainide. Um, There was also a Canadian trial, the Canadian trial of AFib, CTAF. Well, there you go. Yeah. How much more on the nose can it get? Um, So that was 400 patients who had at least one episode of AFib within six months of entry uh, to low-dose amiodarone, sodalol, or propafenone. And after 16 months, amiodarone was associated with a significantly greater likelihood of being free from recurrent AFib, and that was 65% versus 37% for the other two. So these are a few things in favor of amiodarone. Mm. I think, I mean, the way I kind of think about it is just in general, amiodarone is probably going to be more effective and one of the more effective options, but you have to deal with so side many effects. more potential side effects. Yes. So, you know, I think as far as, you know, maintaining normal sinus rhythm, amiodarone probably is 
the most effective. Um, however, there's plenty of good data around sotalol, defetilide, dronetarone, even we'll put an asterisk by that, flecainide and propraphenone um, when you're dealing with just AFib and uh, maintaining more normal sinus rhythm. Um, the uh, the dronetarone is also, just to throw this out there, has been associated with the development of significant side effects as well um, that worsen the outcomes of certain you know, patient groups. So kind of like amiodarone, it's something to watch, watch out for, except amiodarone has the efficacy piece to kind of right. offset some of those risks. Right. Um, whereas dronetarone is not as, as impressive. So just to sum up, um, you kind of split patients into two categories. Do they have structural heart disease or do they not have structural heart disease? If they don't, then you can use pretty much any of the above op- options, defetilide, dronetarone, flecainide, propafenone, sotalol. Um, those would be your first line. If, they fail those, or if you need to, you can move on to amiodarone. And if that doesn't work, or somewhere in the middle, if you decide, you could do catheter ablation, um, if depending on the patient preference and um, uh, if it's performed in an experience center. If they do have structural heart disease, do they have CAD? Do they have heart failure? So if they have coronary artery disease, then defetilide, dronetarone, and sotalol are okay. Um, if they fail those, you can move on to amiodarone. Um, and consider catheter ablation in there as well. But if they have heart failure, amiodarone is going to be your treatment of choice. Um, and then defetilides in there as well with some caveats with catheter ablation as an option too. So it's not super complicated with rhythm control. Just you have to consider the contraindications and issues with coronary artery disease and heart failure. Absolutely. And um, I, I will also throw this in there. Um, should we say, are we going to talk about ablation at all? Do we have anything... I figured we touch on it at the end, but unless you had something more you want to talk about. Well, I was just going to point out that uh, one of the thinking in regards to the structural versus non-structural heart disease and, you know, using one of these anti-rhythmics like you were just talking about, um, one of the options, especially in a patient with like proxismal AFib, um, you know, if the pa- whether they have structural or um, no structural heart disease is potentially catheter ablation um, and... There's also a study that was uh, put out called Early AF. Um, there was a study from 20. Um, it is what it is. I didn't. I didn't uh, name the study. I think AF in this case stands stand for atrial fibrillation ah, for all okay. the adults in the room. He'll <laughs> <laughs> start laughing. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. We don't. You. We don't encourage foul language in this podcast. Um, but uh, Early AF is the study. Yeah, it was 2020, 2021. Um, and it was basically looking at a, uh, a cryo balloon ablation versus antiarrhythmic drugs um, as first line uh, options in these patients that have uh, atrial tachyarrhythmias, as they call it. Um, and so basically what they found is that uh, the ablation actually um, was more effective at um, maintaining the, the patient in normal sinus rhythm compared to an antiarrhythmic drug. And so it was just one of those things that may be, um, you know, it's, just, it's another uh, feather in the cap of, of utilizing ablations uh, maybe earlier on in, in certain patients. So, it's an interesting option. Yeah. Throwing if, that out there. If it works, and, it's a uh, cool option. Make sure you check out that, uh, that study. Yeah. All right, where are we going to go now? Um, so we can talk about the non-dihydropyridine um, calcium channel blockers. Uh, in this instance, and are are they act? They're acting as more. They're acting as rate control. Yeah. Right? So yeah. we're kind of moving on to rate control now. Yeah, I think the the, the ones we talked about are all the antiarrhythmics that I think are worth. There's definitely others, but right. for time's sake, I think we can. Yeah, let's talk about some of the rate control options. Okay, um, and then we'll kind of compare and contrast rate yeah. and rhythm at the end. So. 
Diltiazem and verapamil are the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel options. Um, they can be used in hypertension, but more frequently they're used in certain arrhythmias like AFib. They inhibit calcium ions from entering vascular smooth muscle and myocardial cells. Uh, they're more selective for the myocardium than the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. So that's why we want to use them in this instance. They're a negative inotrope, so they decrease the force of ventricular contraction as well as a negative chronotrope, so they're going to decrease heart rate as well. Um, just be aware of sinus bradycardia, potential for AV block and hypotension. Um, they, at higher doses, they can cause cardiac conduction abnormalities themselves, um, weight loss, nausea, peripheral edema, and verapamil is more associated with constipation. So that's that's something to be aware of too. Uh, but only use the non-dihydropyridines, not the dihydropyridines. I think amlodipine is going to have quite the same effect. No. Probably will give you some peripheral edema though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially if you're not taking it with an ace. <laughs> Let me guess. You're gonna treat it with a loop diet, right? <laughs> All right. Let me guess. The new, uh, the new uh, home infusion. Um, you see that? Mm. I, I didn't look into it much, but there's a new like furosemide. Um, oh yeah, it's an injection. It's like an injection. Yeah, yeah. like a as needed like mm -hmm. injection of furosemide. Interesting, huh? It is interesting. Yeah. It's on my. I took a screenshot of it so I could remember to look it up. Yeah. So thanks for reminding me. Well, I didn't look into it much either. I just saw huh, injectable uh, at home furosemide. Yeah. Weird. I go, well, I already know about some frozen months. I'll, I'll learn about the rest of it later. <laughs> yeah, I'll put right. it on the back burner. Yeah. Um, uh, but also, we mentioned digoxin as a rate control drug. This, this one is definitely not uh, utilized nearly as often as like the beta blockers would be or diltiazem. But it is still potentially an option. Um, and it's uh, something that does need to be monitored uh, or an EKG needs to be monitored as long as heart rate, blood pressure, electrolytes, renal function, and even a digoxin level um, if you're worried about any kind of toxicity or anything. Um, digoxin toxicity uh, kind of presents as like nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, um, usually causes some bradycardia, um, and then lowering, uh, lowering uh, the potassium and magnesium um, or patients that already have uh, those conditions um, are, have a much higher uh, chance of toxicity from digoxin. Um, also, if you are using other medications like amiodarone, um, at the same time, digoxin can affect their levels because of drug-drug interactions. And so... Uh, it's one of those things that uh, digoxin has kind of fallen out of favor. Sometimes you'll see it in patients, again, that have comorbidities with like heart failure or something along those lines, but we have a bunch of better drugs that are less worrisome as far as side effects go. So you don't see this one as often, at least in the, um, unless it's in an older doc or something. Right. Right. Um, so as far as rate versus rhythm, I feel like when, when I was um, coming through school, it was just like rate all the time because, you know, uh, we've, mm -hmm. got, we've got the data. There are definitely situations where rhythm control could be preferred. But yeah. as far as the AFFIRM trial goes, um, that was the big landmark trial to say rate is okay. It's as good as rhythm, uh, basically. Before that, rhythm control was the preferred option. Um, but the AFFIRM trial showed that we can just decrease their heart rate um, to a, a specific point um, and not worry as much about cardioverting them to normal sinus rhythm. And we're going to get similar outcomes as far as embolic risk goes. Um, so the rate strategy is, of course, the drugs we talked about, beta blockers, the things that are going to lower the heart rate, rhythm strategy being the antirhythmics that we talked about. Um, and in the Affirm trial, they looked at pretty much all the ones we had talked about for both of those um, um, situations. At five-year mortality, there was no difference, but with rhythm strategy, there was a higher risk for hospitalization, and as you'd imagine, there were more adverse effects with the rhythm, rhythm strategy. So that's really the reason why um, 
unless there's kind of a specific, a few specific situations that we'll talk about, rate control makes sense because you just want to, they're cleaner drugs. You're going to have less adverse effects, possibly <laughs> decrease hospitalizations based on this trial, but have similar outcomes. Um, some situations where rhythm might be preferred uh, would be um, just general symptom improvement seems to be better because the patients do have symptoms from being in AFib, even if their rate is lower. Um, and that can be bothersome to people. So converting them back to normal sinus rhythm can improve their symptoms. Younger patient age um, and irreversible structural and electrical remodeling that can occur with longstanding persistent AFib. So there's some concern that just letting them be in AFib for a long time could cause some some other issues. Um, a firm was five years, but those would be some arguments for rhythm as well, even though we kind of, we still tend towards rate for the most part. And, uh, some limitations of, you know, a firm, um, as well as race was another one that kind of was looking at the same sort of situation. The, the ages of the patients in those studies were, um, around 70 years old, uh, in a firm and 68 in race. And so on average, so the younger patient population wasn't really represented in these studies. And that's one population, like Cole was saying, that maybe actually have more benefit of from the rhythm, you know, control being a little bit more aggressive, but less likely to have issues with the side effects. Um, and then also patients, uh, um, in a firm specifically one half of the patients, um, having their like kind of detailed history of their symptomatic episodes, um, had occurred less often than once per month. Uh, and so patients that are having like the, that infrequent of, uh, of AFib occurrences basically would, uh, we would assume they wouldn't really get too much benefit out of the rhythm control versus maybe patients who are a little bit more severe. Um, there's also, you know, this was done before catheter ablation was done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so that can also, if we'd compared that kind of like the, um, early AFib, not, not AF study. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, kind of like they were looking at, um, but those studies were done prior to that. So that wasn't also, that wasn't compared at all. So that can right. throw, throw things off, but there's definitely some discrepancies, but like Cole said, there's, um, there are definitely reasons to use, uh, rhythm control even today. And they consider catheter ablation, a, a form of rhythm control because you're putting them back in normal sinus yeah. rhythm. Um, obviously if they fail rate control, that's an option. That's a reason to use rhythm control. Um, they try to talk about if they're symptomatic and have mm -mm. heart failure. So if they're symptomatic and have heart failure, that would be a reason. You'll see um, other arguments elsewhere that in general, symptoms are a reason to use uh, rhythm control. And even if a patient reports being asymptomatic, they might have subtle symptoms of like fatigue and other things that they don't notice until they're put back in from the AFib, from the literal arrhythmia, um, that, they're, that they don't notice until they're put back in normal sinus rhythm. Um, and so... And because of that, that, that's why you'll see people offer it even for new onset AFib patients for those reasons. Um, so yeah, that, it's, it's not, it's not rate, 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 but, um, there's, there's, I mean, to me, there's still a stronger argument towards rate unless there's one of these other situations, but that's why you'll see it offered and it's at least understandable. Yeah. But I, I do agree. Like when I was in school, it was like basically taught right. rate only. Right. Cause it was know, like, this is evidence based rate control. Yeah. It's like, well, it's like, well, that's a little more nuanced. Than a little, little nuanced. Yeah. Um, but if you are going to use rate control, one of the things that is also debated or was debated is the, the goal, uh, heart rate for those patients. So the race two trial, 
was looking at lenient uh, rate control, which is basically a, um, a heart rate less than 110 beats per minute versus more strict rate control, which is a heart rate of less than 80. And basically the study, the study showed that both uh, lenient and strict were about as the same, you know, efficacy as far as maintaining normal sinus rhythm and, um, you know, keeping the patient uh, symptom-free, if you will. Um, if, uh, if the patient is still having symptoms at 110, then it would be advised to kind of push the goal or push their uh, heart rate down to less than 80. But we no longer have to just start as, with that as our goal. Less than 110 is where we can um, initiate their goal at and then go down from there. And yeah, that's that's an option if patients are symptomatic too, is to push the the um, heart rate down as opposed to switching to rhythm mm-hmm. or something like that to see if that helps. If they're, I mean, I'd imagine if they're still... Um, bothersomely symptomatic under 80 then you would that would be um, over time you might consider that a rate control failure uh and switch to rhythm um yeah i think the issue is especially with school people don't like hearing that there's nuance Mm -hmm. they like they like saying hey this is evidence-based these are the two options rate and rhythm yeah rates preferred because it's got less side effects and it just adds complexity to get a little more see nuances where all the fun stuff happens it is but i don't think people like hearing like oh yeah you've got all these different options and like they're all fine unless the patient has this this this, or this you know it's the best part yeah it's also hard to write multiple choice questions off that (laughs) it's very difficult it is extremely difficult to write multiple choice questions. yeah that's why yeah you have to make things black and white for the test answers yeah hate it it's okay. That's why we have the, the only way to, in those situations to make things black and white is to give patients contraindications to other drugs. Yeah. To like reasons why they can't use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. Writing questions is, is definitely tougher than I ever thought it was. You've written hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, now, but I still, it's not like, I still yeah. struggle with it because then I'll read it back over and be like, oh, they could ask this and yep. they could do this. And then I'll be told that, oh, you can give me this information. Do you give points back? Uh, if I, I mean, if, if it really was a dumb question, I've definitely written some, or I didn't explain something right in the question, whatever. Have you had a lot of complainers in the past Mm-mm. about that? No. In fact, my usually the feedback is my test is fair, which is like, I mean, I tell them exactly like what I want them to know. So it's not like I'm like pulling stuff out of random. Right. So I feel like it is fair, but usually they say that. I don't know if they're just saying that. Usually the evaluation where they could rip on me. No, I'd imagine the way the climate is now, what I see with younger classes is if they aren't happy with the test questions they're going to let you know right yeah. afterwards you know what i mean so. and they're going to try to get points back yeah no i rule that classroom with an iron fist <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just kidding i'm a nice guy <laughs> so let's talk about stroke risk um we had mentioned it earlier with you know the acute afib uh, because you know needing to decide whether or not you need to anticoagulate the patient before cardioverting them however going forward with their chronic AFib management, you also need to consider whether or not the patient is at risk for having a stroke um as a result of a clot formation in that left atrial appendage. So there is something called the CHADS VASC score, um, which is basically just this scoring system that you can use to assess the risk that a patient has at having a, a stroke due to AFib. So um, con- it stands for con- C is congestive heart failure, uh, H is hypertension, A is age, basically 75 years of age or older. You get two points for that one. The others you get one point. Diabetes, you get a point. If you've had a previous stroke or a transient ischemic attack, um, it's two points for that one as well. Vascular disease, you get a point. If you are 65 to 70 years old, then you get one point. And uh, if you're female birth gender uh, or birth uh, sex, rather, um, you will get one point as well. So basically, for men, if it's two or higher um, or three or higher in women, um, then anticoagulation is recommended. 
And anticoagulation can be done with the long-term anticoagulants that we discussed in our very recent anticoagulation episodes. So yeah. Go back and check it out for much, 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 much more detail. Um, but we have the vitamin K antagonist warfarin. We have the direct-acting um, oral anticoagulants, whatever they're called. The big Dobigatran, Rivaroxaban. We'll Dobigatran, I like that better. Apixaban, Adoxaban. Um, with warfarin, we went over it a lot in the previous episode, but it competitively inhibits the C1 subunit of the multi-unit vitamin K epoxide reductase enzyme complex, um, reducing the generation of vitamin K epoxide and depleting all the vitamin K factors over time. Um, it has some warnings to be aware of. Tissue necrosis, gangrene, cholesterol microemboli, uh, bleeding risk to a horse, purple toe syndrome. But the big thing is the INR. So the goal INR for most situations is 2 to 3, um, 2.5 to 3.5 for high-risk indications like mechanical um, mitral valves or two mechanical heart valves. Uh, and the recommendation is to check the first INR after the initial two to three doses. So these patients are going to have to be monitored um, frequently, you know, once a week for a few weeks and then monthly after that consistently to make sure that they're properly anticoagulated in that INR range. And uh, as far as the the bleed risk, um, I think we mentioned this in the anticoag episode, but there are uh, bleed risk calculators. So has bled is is a big one that you can kind of utilize to see uh, the likelihood of a patient um, having a bleed by being on anticoagulation. Um, then the other anticoagulants, the, the DOAX, so the dabigatran and rivaroxaban, all those. Um, again, like Cole said, we just did anticoags like two episodes ago, so go check that out. But um, just to give you a couple things to consider, um, one, a doxaban has, is the one that has that really weird uh, renal dose adjustment where if um, the patient's creatinine clearance is above 95 mils per minute, you cannot use this medication. So if your renal function is too good, you can't use it, and if it's below 15, you can't use it. Um, and then with, uh, rivaroxaban, um, the dosing is usually 20 milligrams a day unless it's been decreased slightly for, um, renal purposes, but, uh, both the 15 and the 20 milligrams do end up have to be taken with food. Um, so the lower doses of rivaroxaban do not, but just keep that in mind. You will not get as much, uh, medication in your system. Right. Right. Um, and there are some landmark trials to be aware of in relation to, um, these medications and their use in AFib, there's with warfarin. There's the SPAF trial. I wonder if they call it the SPAF trial. I hope so. Or the SPAF. All right, that's what I, I said the first time. I'm gonna say SPAF. SPAF. Yeah, because it's funny. SPAF trial. Um, <laughs> then you can look at the Bigatran versus warfarin, the Relay trial, Rivaroxaban versus warfarin, the Rocket AF trial. With the Relay trial, um, it came out that. Um, the Bigatran reduces stroke risk without increasing the risk of major bleeding compared to warfarin. There was a higher risk of MI in this trial with the Bigatran. With the Rocket AF trial, Rivaroxaban reduced stroke risk as well as warfarin, so it was non-inferior with no difference in adverse effects. They're pretty much equivalent. Um, Aristotle with the, um, Apixaban and warfarin, there was greater stroke reduction with apixaban, lower bleed risk than warfarin with apixaban. That's why we generally like apixaban is the Aristotle trial. It does have twice-a-day dosing, which um, isn't as ideal. And then adoxaban versus warfarin was the Engage AF TIMI 48 trial. Um, greater stroke reduction, possibly, possibly no difference. Um, it depends on, because of the way they reported the data and all that. Uh, but lower adverse effects yeah. than warfarin. 
So yeah, um, the DOAX, I will say, are preferred uh, over Warfarin now, whereas it used to be one or the other. Um, but now the DOAX do seem to be preferred, and they don't give a specific uh, one. mention of one over the other, which we, I think rivaroxaban and apixaban are two that are, you're going to actually see more commonly used. Um, and then Warfarin is still an option for like valvular AFib and things like that. So non-valvular AFib, when you're talking about anticoagulation, we're talking the DOAX would be preferred. Right. Um, they do give some caveats, for instance, if the patient meets the CHAT-VAS score to be um, anticoagulated, but um, they have end-stage chronic kidney disease um, or a chronic clearance less than 15 or they're on dialysis, it might be reasonable to do warfarin at that point um, or a pixaban, they say, for anticoagulation. Um, I think those are the only other caveats they give. Yeah. Um, if the patient has a, a contraindication to a long-term anticoagulation and you can't do that, that would be another time where you might go back to the um, Watchman device. The, yeah, the, uh, catheter that was, that's what I was going to make sure we close with is that percutaneous left atrial appendage occlusion is what the technical term is, and the device is called the Watchman. It's really cool. If you haven't actually seen it, make sure you take, go Google it and look it up. It's, it's a pretty cool device, but it's basically there to sort of catch a clot so to speak, um, in that left atrial appendage so that it can't, you know, throw the clot and cause a stroke. Um, so again, that's going to be more for patients who need long-term anticoagulation, but have contraindications to it. So, um, you can use this device and it's, uh, getting more and more prevalent from what I've heard. Four so. years ago, I guess, or five, when I was on an Amcare rotation, we had a whole bunch of patients who had had the Watchman procedure. Really? That was a long time ago. Yeah. So I can cool. only imagine it's more now. So, uh, anything else in particular? As far as AFib goes, that's all I got. As far as the next hundred episodes, are we going to change it up any, or we're just going to keep going the way we're going? Hard. I'll have Anything to think new planned for I'll the have to next hundred? Think 100? about it this weekend. <laughs> yeah. See what I come up with. <laughs> Um, also, I want to make sure I uh, give a shout out to our, our sponsor, Pearls. Um, so if you have not downloaded the app, uh, the drug information app known as Pearls, go to pyrls.com slash coreconsultrx. And AJ, will you share my screen real quick? Um, you'll get this awesome uh, welcome screen because you guys are our friends, and so you get special things that happen. So click Get Started. You can sign up for a free uh, account, and you'll get some uh, copies of PDF charts for diabetes meds and some other stuff. And you can check out the app, and you'll get access to a lot of cool stuff. And then if you decide you want to get the full, the full app, you can upgrade your account from there. But um, if nothing else, give it a try. See what you think. It's a lot of really cool stuff um, being added all the time. Their charts are great, and it's very very aesthetically pleasing to the eye, I will say as well. Um, so uh, give, give them a look. They've been supporting us for quite a while now. So um, check out the app, see what you think, and uh, we, we greatly appreciate it. Um, and let's see. What else do we, we need to cover anything else? with this oh i know what i want to do um real quick aj will you uh because i think we're out of time but show my screen real quick again aj um this is from the patreon but this is like a uh just like a summary sheet that i kind of threw together based from some other um diagrams from like textbooks and things but basically it goes through the acute onset um and you, if you are watching the video version of this you can kind of just pause the screen because i'm gonna go quick for time's sake but it walks you through like the uh, anticoagulation necessity or, or not. Um, and then it goes into the long-term management of AFib based on comorbidities and symptom control and all that with the antiarrhythmics. Um, if you need to go that route as well as, uh, we 
you know, obviously no rate control is an option as well. And then the stroke risk using the Chad's vast core and, and all that good stuff. So it's a quick two page summary, but, uh, there you go. If you guys need to see that, um, I want to make sure I, I said I would, we would summarize it at the end. So I'll let you guys read through that on your own time, but, nice. uh, one page front and back. Yeah. It's perfect. Or two pages, one front, one side. If you want to do that. Did Whatever. you make that? Yeah. I can tell it switches between fonts. There are times to room in an aerial. <laughs> Guys, AJ knows he took He took off the sunglasses for that yeah, one. Yeah, he did. <laughs> oh, AJ. It's all right. We love him anyway. Um, all right. So, um, AJ, switch back to center for me. Um, anything else, Cole, for that? We well, I, the only thing I wanted to mention was AJ did point out that that safety trial, mm-hmm. the title was Sotolol Amiodarone Atrial Fibrillation Efficacy Trial Safe-T. They did it right. They did it right. Yeah. Thanks, AJ. We can always count on you to call us out. Thumbs up. <laughs> That's why we keep them around to keep us humble. Um, all right, guys. Well, I appreciate everything. Um, we really appreciate you all listening. And uh, if you are not a free CE member, um, we want you to get credit for this episode. So go join, get an unlimited membership, use the discount code, and then uh, you can have access to all kinds of good information. If you are an unlimited member, um, go to the uh, link in the show notes. It'll take you over to their website and um, use that password, rhythm, all caps, and you will you have access to the post-activity test. Rock that, and then you'll get your credit. Um, if you need uh, anything from Cole or myself, the emails will be in the show notes. Um, you can reach us on the social media platforms. You can text us in the number uh, in the show notes. And um, if you want more like lecture style podcasts, check out patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. You can get access to all my uh, lectures um, that I do for my PA students. And I'm uh, trying to add a lot more over the next month because I'll be... Uh, um, having some more free time than usual. So I'm wrapping up teaching and all that. So I'm going to try to get Patreon rocking and rolling. Uh, so thank you guys so much for all of you who do subscribe to that. It helps us uh, maintain the podcast uh, quality, if you will, um, get us gets us new equipment, things like that. So thanks for the support there. And we really support uh, appreciate the support of you guys just listening and continuing to stay with us. So I think September uh, we set a new record for downloads in a month. So nice. Thank you guys very much for continuing to put up with us, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Have a good night.